You are now listening to the September 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hey listeners, it's Jisoo from the History of the Biblio, where we learn about the history of the translation and preservation of the Bible. Last time, we looked at the English Bibles published in the 16th and 17th centuries. Remember how we talked about William Tyndale who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English? Only a year after his death, the King of England authorized an English version of the Bible and the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles were printed. Afterwards, many other English versions of the Bible were printed as well, such as the Puritan Geneva Bible and the King James Bible. Today, we're going to look at the English Bibles translated and published in America. A few years ago, there was great commotion over the fact that a book sold for over $14 million at a Sotheby's auction. This book was the Bay Psalms, the first book to be printed in America. The Bay Psalms was translated into metered verse by roughly 30 ministers. 1,700 copies of it were printed in 1640. Afterwards, this Psalter was made into a hymnal and used for over 100 years. In order to print this Psalter, the early colonials had a printing press shipped from England. Considering this Psalter was published only 20 years after the Puritans first arrived in America in 1620, this is a great feat. There is also historical significance in the fact that the first book to be published in America was the Bible. The first book to be printed in America was the Bay Psalms. However, the first time an entire Bible was printed in America, the Bible was not in English. The Bible was printed in the language of the natives, in Algonquin, known as one of the most difficult languages in history. Known as Apostles to the Indians, John Eliot, a Puritan missionary from Massachusetts, translated the Bible into Algonquin, publishing the New Testament in 1661 and the Old Testament in 1663. John Eliot spent 10 years among the Indians learning the Algonquin language in order to translate the Bible. And along with his Algonquin Bible, John Eliot spent the next 20 years as a missionary. But with Eliot's death, printing of the Algonquin Bible was discontinued, and even the Algonquin language dissipated. Yet Eliot's Algonquin Bible is important in the history of the Bible and the history of missionaries. This was the first time since the publication of the Slavic Bible in the 9th century that an entire Bible was translated into a foreign language by someone who had to learn that language from scratch. Before this, people were translating Bibles from Hebrew, Greek, or Latin into their mother tongue. But Eliot's drive to spread the gospel led him to learn an entire new language and translate the Bible into this new language. Eliot's example left a positive influence on many missionaries, and he opened the doors for the Bible to be translated into many new and different languages. The base Psalms and the Algonquin Bible were both printed in America, but before America's independence, it was illegal for an American printer to print an English Bible. At the time, it was actually cheaper to make copies in England and ship them to America. 
After America declared their independence from England, England started to regulate all printed materials entering America. During the War for Independence, procuring a Bible became more and more difficult. American Congress tried to find ways to print the Bible by seeking bids from printers. One of the printers that participated in this bidding process was Robert Aitken. Aitken first published the New Testament in 1777, and he was so successful with this print that he printed the Bible four more times. In 1782, Aitken had printed more than 10,000 Bibles. This Bible was the first entire English Bible printed in America. This Bible was also the first to be approved by Congress. Afterwards, English Bibles were printed at a greater rate in America. Publisher Matthew Carey printed the first King James Bible in America in 1801, and this too was extremely successful. Carey mass-produced his Bibles and sold them at cheap prices. His sales overlapped the Second Great Awakening, which added to the sales count. By 1880, over 32 million Bibles had been printed in America. From 1881 to now, many different versions of the English Bible is being published. The New Testament of the Revised Version, editing the King James Version, was published in 1881. The Old Testament was published in 1885. This revised version involved two separate revising committees, one in America and one in England. However, the committee in America ended up with a different version than the committee in England. This American version became the ASV, or the American Standard Version, which was first published in 1901. The New Testament of the RSV, or Revised Standard Version, which edited the ASV, was published in 1946. The entire RSV Bible was then published in 1952. There are many versions of the RSV print one that contains Oxford analyses, one that contains a Catholic New Testament, or ones directed for the varying Catholic, Protestant, and Puritan communities. In 1961, over one million copies of the New English Bible, an abridged version for easy reading, sold in the first day. After this, many other abridged versions were published. Some examples are the Good News Bible and the Living Bible. Many other versions of the English Bible exist. One of the many published, the NIV version, first published in 1973, is the most popular and widely used for its modern English. The NIV was translated in part by the International Evangelical Association and is used widely by evangelical ministries. The TNIV, which revises the NIV, was published twice, in 2002 and in 2005. The ESV, published in 2001, was revised to be more aligned with evangelical ideals. The ESV used as its source the 1971 RSV Bible, but revised overly liberal translations and pursued a more literal translation rather than to paraphrase. As the most recent version, many people have used and enjoyed the ESV in the past 15 years. There are many more versions of the English Bible. Compared to when the Puritans first arrived in America, translation and publication of the Bible has proliferated. We can learn something from the publication and translation history of the Bible. God's plan to provide us with the Word has remained constant. Earlier, we stated that the Bay Psalms was sold for more than $14 million. It was priced so highly because it was the first book to be published in America. If one book published 400 years ago is so valuable, how valuable do you think is a book that has a history far older and longer? And if this book contained words to save our souls, could we price such a book? I pray that you and I can be the kind of people who always read and spread this message of life. See you next time. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. So are you getting a better idea of what the word purity truly means? Well, I pray that the Lord continues to teach you in this area of purity and holiness as we press on with our discussion of how God makes us perfect in purity. Today, we move to the New Testament. And we ask this question, how exactly did Jesus handle people who were sexual sinners? Did he yell at them at all? Did he shame them in any way? No, no, he did not. That in itself is a lesson for our current church leaders, but I digress. In today's podcast, we'll discuss several things. Number one, how and why the church distances itself from sexual sinners. Number two, how Jesus upholds the Old Testament law for adultery, and at the very same time, he ushers in New Testament grace. Number three, how Jesus is not just the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but he is also the Groom of Grooms. Today's lesson is titled, Neither Do I. So there's an expression in Bible study, it's a phrase, it's scripture interprets scripture. And that means basically where else can I find this topic in the Bible? If I'm in the Old Testament, I like to see, okay, this is in the Old Testament, where in the New Testament can I find this topic? Today we're talking about sexuality. Better question for you Bible scholars is, where do I see Jesus talking about this? Where can I find that? I would like you to flip over to John chapter 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he started to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst. That means they placed her in the middle of everything. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you got to say? If you're unfamiliar with this text, stoning, getting stoned is not what you think. Okay? Getting stoned is a form of execution. What's going on here is that this woman was on her way to uh, her deathbed. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, just like we're gathering here today, imagine a half a dozen people just busting through the doors and dragging this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Imagine the scene that would disrupt this whole service, right? 
What's the first thing that you would notice about this woman? If she was just caught in the act of adultery, she's most likely naked. Maybe she has something around her. But the reality is that this woman is crying. She's in shock. She's got tears streaming down her face, and she's trying to cover herself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the circus? These pastors, these priests, these ministers, they were joyfully getting ready to carry out God's law for sexual sin. Make no doubt about it, her adultery was punishable by death. And I know that's really hard to even fathom in the culture that we live. But here's the thing, so is the man. They were breaking the very law that they were trying to uphold because the man was not there. The law states that the adulterer and the adulteress must be stoned. They must be executed. And where is he? Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. So what's going on here? If Jesus said that the woman should not be executed, then the pastors and the priests and the ministers would then accuse Jesus of breaking the law of Moses. But if Jesus said that she should be executed, then those same men are going to run to the Romans and go, he is going, he's getting ready to break Roman law because Roman law says Jews cannot carry out their own execution. So they're trying to trick Jesus. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. So once again, imagine this scene. They continued to ask him. Have you ever had a bunch of people asking you the same question over and over and over again? Jesus, we caught this woman, the law, what do you say, what do you say? This woman, this woman over there, this woman over in the midst, we're not going to stand next to her, but it's this woman. See, that's distancing language. This woman that I don't want anything to do with, she's broken the law. And they say it with, with such complete disgust. This woman. We heard kind of the same thing with President Clinton with Monica Lewinsky a few years back. Remember what he said? I did not have sexual relations with who? With that woman, Miss Lewinsky. He distanced himself from her. So what's Jesus do here? It's amazing. It's so amazing. He, in perfect truth and unimaginable grace, he says, okay, for those of you guys who have never sinned, go right ahead. Start warming up. Can you imagine the silent? Like you would have heard a pin drop. Just They have never heard anything like that before. And what he does with this statement is incredible. See, he fulfills the Old Testament law. He upholds it. And yet, at the very same time, he ushers in this thing called New Testament grace. It's grace. He does that with one sentence. It's almost like Jesus is going, you know what, guys? Um, did you hear my sermon on the mount? I was talking about lust that day. You may want to pick up a copy. It's going to be a bestseller. I'm just saying... Verse 8, 
So once more, Jesus bends down and he starts to write something on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the older and the wiser men, they immediately get pierced to the heart. He's talking about my sin now? No thanks. I'm, I'm done. But see, the younger men, the less mature men, the men who have not lived long enough to make those kind of mistakes, they're still gripping their stones out of self-righteousness. And then finally, they start dropping their stones and they start leaving. Verse 10, so Jesus stands up and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? (laughs) Now keep in mind, we're still in a Bible study. The pastors, the priests, the ministers, those guys have all gone, but you guys are still watching this whole thing. They haven't gone anywhere. They're not leaving this Bible study. It's the best Bible study ever, right? They're watching this whole thing unfold out. So we, hear, we see Jesus go, woman, where are they? Where did all those guys go? Woman, a term of endearment. Jesus called his own mother woman. Gentlemen, let me ask you this. Guys, can you imagine Jesus looking into the eyes of this scared woman who's completely in shock, looking into the eyes and saying, where'd they go? He's not looking at another body part with complete tenderness and love. He is looking her in her eyes. But see, she doesn't realize that this man standing right in front of her He is the Lord of lords, and he is the king of kings. And this man is the groom of all grooms. This man is not going to hurt this woman. He's the perfect man. And if you look at this woman's life, there's a series of choices that have gone from A to B to C to get her to commit adultery. And she's looking for love in all the wrong places, and love is standing right in front of her. Oh, my gosh. Has no one condemned you? The words come from the man who is the lover of her soul. In other words, is no one here that's going to mock you anymore or judge you or shame you or abuse you? Where'd they go? We finally hear her speak in verse 11. She says three words, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. The the NIV reads, go and leave your life of sin. She speaks three words, and Jesus speaks three words. He says, neither do I. Guys, I think that we need to hear those words today. Neither do I. Some of you are going, well, Dustin, mm, I don't know about all that because, you know, you don't know me and you don't know the, li- the life that I lived, and you don't know my mistakes, and you don't know what's going through my head, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that may be true, but, but, but see, it doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what Jesus says, and Jesus says, neither do I. I don't condemn you. Isn't that amazing? 
how Jesus treats people. The way that Jesus handles questions from the pastors and the priests and the ministers of his day to the young, proud, arrogant, self-righteous men who were holding those stones, who just couldn't wait to kill somebody in the name of Old Testament law, to our main character of the story, the woman caught in adultery. And better yet, isn't it amazing how Jesus treats you? So if I may, please allow me to ask you some probing questions today. Do you really realize or recognize how good you have it? Have you thanked God for your health? What about the things that you take for granted every day, like the food in the fridge and the gas in the car, the roof over your head? Have you thanked Him for the job and the ability to even make a living? And what about your spouse, your friends, your family, your church? Have you thanked him for those people in your life, no matter how screwed up they may be? Have you thanked him? I got to tell you, I love this story of the woman caught in adultery. And I pray that as you read it and you reread it, that the Lord reveals new and amazing things. I also pray that as he reveals his amazing truths to you, that you start to love others just a fraction of how much he loves you. If we call ourselves a Christian, we are to love God and to love people and, and love people by putting them first, no matter the cost to us. Lastly, I, I realize that many of you may be thinking not about the woman that was caught in adultery, but the man that wasn't there. Did that strike a chord with you? Maybe you could see yourself in his absence. So what happened to him? Did he run away? Did the religious leaders let him go? Did those two ever talk again? And if so, what did they say to one another? I want you to know that I was once that man myself. I was a coward who ran from all of my life's responsibilities, all of my relationships. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I would still be that man. So what changed me? Well, Jesus changed me. Jesus through the power of the local church. Jesus through the community of godly men in my life. What changed me was Jesus, a new life in him. See, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. He's become a new creation. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. That is so amazing. It's, it's so mind-blowing. It's, it's so good. It seems too good to be true. Jesus is faithful to his promises, and when he says that your old life is gone, your new life has begun, it's true. Now, I've also been talking about how important structure is over the past few days. God provided a structure for me to learn why I personally use pornography, why I use sex to bring comfort into my life. He taught me through the process of godly discipleship why I've got this propensity towards lust. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I created this 35-day audio devotional. It's 13, going on 14 years now of my walk with the Lord in recovery 
that you can experience in just 35 days. It specifically addresses the bondage to pornography. It's called the sex spiral. I designed this series as an individual study because I know that you don't want to go to anybody and tell them what's going on in your mind. I know the shame. I know the embarrassment there. Let me encourage you here because this could be the first phase, the first chapter in your new life of actually learning sexual purity, having sexual integrity, and then remaining sexually sober. So think about this. In just one month, your life can look completely different. Learning God's design for sex, marriage, and the family through Genesis 1 and 2. And then learning through the rest of the Bible, the triggers that lead to porn addiction. This is not based in psychology. This is based in God's word. So let me encourage you to order it today. You can go to DustinDaniels.org, click on store and receive a 20% uh, discount with the promotional code podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And you can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. If you got a question for me, you can email me your question at DustinDaniels.org. The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, my friend, it's in the name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Faith and Freedom based on 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17. If you have a Bible wherever you might be, somebody around you does, you can look all the way. Let me invite you to open with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 together. So let's start by reading the text. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. This is the word of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Two biblical truths from 1 Peter. And the reason I wanted to take us to this passage in particular So get the context here. Peter is writing this letter to a group of Christians who were experiencing persecution in first century Rome. And they were wondering, how do we relate to the Roman government around us? Which is a Christless government. They're saying, how do we respond to this? Should we ignore government? Disregard government altogether? Should we resist government this way or that way? Or should we just be quiet? Do whatever government says? So we've got to remember the biblical context here and we need to keep in mind that the New Testament context is very different from the Old Testament context in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, God's people originated as a theocracy with God as king and they became a monarchy. But when we get to the New Testament, God doesn't organize his people in a government. Instead, Christians are spread out in society. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 calls Christians exiles who are scattered amidst worldly government for the glory of God. Of God. So that then leads to first truth we see here in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Truth number one, we are submissive citizens of a government according to God. From the very start of this passage, the Bible is clear. As followers of Christ, we are to subject ourselves to human institutions and the authority they have in our lives. Particularly, Peter says, to emperors and governors who are over us. This is God's will, this passage says. And the key word, as we think about this, is submissive. We're to submit, to subject ourselves willingly to the government around us, which is a pretty astonishing command when you think about it. And it is a command. Peter's writing this letter to Christians, either during the time of the emperor Claudius or more likely Nero, both of whom were totally ungodly, even setting themselves up as gods. Nero was persecuting and killing Christians. And Peter says, be subject to the emperor as supreme and to governors sent by him. Do this for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. That was pretty astonishing in the first century to read. Now we need to realize Peter's only echoing here what Jesus himself taught. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked whether or not it was in accord with God's law to pay taxes to Rome, and specifically the poll tax to Caesar, tax that was despised by the Jewish people, Jesus gave his famous response in Matthew 22, 21, when after he asked for a copy of a coin with Caesar's likeness on it, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. So Jesus clearly didn't teach that his followers should disregard government. Instead, Jesus teaches that there are things we rightfully owe government. And paying taxes was not just permissible. It was morally obligatory to pay taxes, even to a pagan king. Morally obligatory. So we are obeying God even on April 15th each year. Just remember that. This is an act of worship to God. We are submissive citizens of a government who render to government what government is due according to the will of God. And Peter's not just echoing Jesus. He's also pointing us to Romans 13. Listen to what God says in Romans 13, verse 1. Follow along. Let every person, this is the word of God, be subject 
to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That sounds pretty similar to Matthew 22 and 1 Peter 2, doesn't it? Paul opens almost the same statement that Peter used. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities because God has set them up as an authority for a purpose. And that purpose is evident in both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. So if you were taking notes, like purpose of government summarized is twofold according to God's word. Why does government exist? One, government is given by God to restrain evil. Emperors and government, Peter says, are sent by God to punish those who do evil. Romans 13, 4 says the government is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So government is given by God to restrain evil, to punish evil. Second, government is given by God to promote good. 1 Peter 2, 14 says government's purpose is to praise those who do good. In the same way, Romans 13 talks about how government is given by God to promote good for people. And obviously, one of the ways government promotes good under God is by protecting freedoms given to people by God. So let's pause and make some application here. This is why we as Christians view issues like religious freedom, not primarily as political issues, but as biblical issues. We know, celebrate this week, Declaration of Independence, which says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain alienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Goes on to say, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. But the founders of our nation did not come up with that. The author of creation came up with that. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible. The religious freedom is not ultimately given by government. It's ultimately given by God himself. In Genesis 1, 2, 3, we see that God creates man and woman with the capacity to choose whether or not to obey or disobey him. God doesn't force faith upon his creation. We often talk about God's sovereignty over all things, and God is sovereign over all things, but his sovereignty does not remove or negate man and woman's responsibility. We all have the choice whether or not to obey or disobey God, and we have that choice because God has given it to us. This is clear in the ministry of Jesus. He came to the earth inviting people to receive him or reject him. Many people listened to him. Others reasoned with him. Some argued with him. Many disagreed with him. Ultimately, they all abandoned him to a cross. But he didn't come forcing faith on people. In fact, in Luke 9, Jesus rebuked his disciples for their desire to call down condemnation on Samaritans who were rejecting him. In the next chapter, Luke 10, Jesus encouraged his disciples to respect people's freedom to reject him, which is part of why we see what we see in 1 Peter. Honor 
everyone, the Bible says here in verse 17. Even the emperor. Even those who are different from you. Why? Because as men and women made in the image of God, they have the capacity to choose either to obey God or disobey God. This is why, church, whenever we see news headlines about North Korea or any other of a number of nations along these lines, our first impulse should be to pray and to work for religious freedom and specifically to pray and work for persecuted church around the world. Let's remember this week that the freedoms we celebrate here are not shared by many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Many of them living right now in a setting very similar to 1 Peter where it's costing them deeply to follow Christ. According to our State Department, Christians face persecution of some kind in more than 60 different countries. On average, about 100 Christians around the world are killed every month for their faith in Christ. Some estimates have that number much higher. I chose the most conservative one I could find. Literally countless others are persecuted through abuse, beatings, imprisonment, torture, deprivation of food, water, shelter, jobs, and the Bible commands us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, particularly all the more so on a week like this. We miss the point this week if we bask in our freedom while turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to family, brothers and sisters around the world who long for this kind of freedom. Now, that obviously leads us to ask the question, if the Bible teaches that we're submissive citizens of a government, then what do you do when that government isn't doing what God created it to do? How do you live as a submissive citizen of a government when that government isn't restraining evil and isn't promoting good? Like, How do you live when you see a government doing the opposite, promoting evil and restraining good? That's a question our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world wrestle with. That's a question in varying degrees that we find ourselves wrestling with even here. But again, that's what's so astonishing in these passages because Paul and Peter are writing these letters amidst an openly decadent Roman Empire filled with idolatry, immorality of all kinds, the abuse of women, infanticide with children, the persecution of Christians. Paul and Peter both killed from because of their faith in Christ, yet both of them are saying that Christians are submissive citizens of a government. So how do you live like that? And that question leads to the second truth in the Bible concerning God and government, faith and freedom. So one, we are submissive citizens of a government. Two, we are free servants of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free. And this is not Peter giving a political stump speech. He's not talking about political freedom here. Peter is talking about spiritual freedom. Peter is talking about how Christians have been freed from the power and penalty of sin. And that freedom makes us, into verse 16, servants of God. Now, that may seem like an oxymoron, a free servant. Because of death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, all those who place their faith in him, Christians, are free from the bondage of sin to live the life God has created us to live as servants of him. For non-Christian friends who are here today, please do not mistake to sin. All of us prone to turn from God to our own ways. And all of us as a result are destined for eternity apart 
from God in our slavery to sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us. God has not left us alone in our slavery to sin and eternal death. God has come to us in the person of Jesus who never once sinned. And then even though he did not deserve to die, he chose to die for our sins, to pay the price we are due. And then he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that everyone, anyone who repents and believes, turns from sin, trusts in the love of Jesus, will be forgiven of all your sin and free from its penalty and power forever. That is the freedom. Church doesn't unite around an earthly citizenship. The church unites around a heavenly citizenship. The church is made up of, not of people who unite together under a particular country's flag. The church is made up of people who unite together under a particular cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Always has been and always will be Jesus Christ. No matter where our passport is from, it's a freedom that transcends nations, governments, and it's a freedom that we will celebrate with people from every nation for all of eternity. We are free servants of God. So it makes us the church. Now, that freedom, so our freedom in Christ, which is ultimate freedom, comes much responsibility for the Christian in his or her country, including the United States. So follow this. Peter says, we use our freedom in Christ, one, to model good lives. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to governing institutions. Verse 14, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then he continues, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here's the picture. As a result of what God has done in our lives through Jesus, we're now free servants of his, which means we're free to live not as evil, but as good, doing good. When Peter talks about silencing the ignorance of foolish people, he's talking about silencing slanderous attacks against Christians by non-Christians in the culture around them. Peter's zealous in a Matthew 5, 13 through 16 kind of way for Christians to be salt and light in the culture, country around them. The non-Christians may see their good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So we use our freedom in Christ, not in an evil, selfish way, but in a good, humble, selfless way, modeling the goodness of Christ in submission to the governing authorities over us. We use our freedom in Christ to model good lives. That should be the commentary on our lives. In our country, we're showing the goodness of God. And then, in the process, second, we use our freedom in Christ to show God's love. So you look at verse 17 in 1 Peter 2. Peter closes this passage with four short commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So how does God in his word tell us specifically to show his love in the country around us? Well, one, we honor everyone, especially our leaders. Now this command to honor starts and ends this verse, like bookends. So the picture is followers of Christ showing respect, attributing dignity, assigning value to everyone out exception. Even people who disagree or even oppose you, honor them. They're made in God's image and worthy of respect. This is why we must be known for honoring the word of God. The word of God is why we honor babies in the womb. The word of God is why we honor 
people of different ethnicities. The word of God is why we honor the poor and oppressed. The word of God is why we honor immigrants who have made their home in our country. The word of God is why we honor children and their parents at our borders and on and on and on. Again, I'm not advocating a particular policy or position here. There's room for so much discussion among followers of Christ on these issues. But what is driving all of us in those discussions is we are concerned with showing God's love by honoring all people including, did you catch how Peter closes the section? Honor the emperor. It's like Peter saying, especially him. Honor even this man who set himself up as a God over you and leads a government that is persecuting you. For even he is a man made in the image of God and worthy of your honor. And we need to hear. The Bible, God in his word, beckons us to honor our president and our government leaders in the way we speak about him and them, the way we pray for him. Brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't give us a choice here. This is a command. And if Nero was worthy of honor in the first century, then our president and our leaders are worthy of honor in the 21st century. Obviously, that doesn't mean We agree with everything a president or government leader does. We support everything in his or her agenda. Does mean we recognize that this is a person created in the image of God, that God loves them, that God desires them to know him. They will one day stand before God as judge. So we intercede for him or them regularly. And we speak about him or them decently. We honor everyone, especially our leaders. It's how we show God's love. Second, we care for the church. The second command there in verse 17, love the brotherhood. It's a reference to the church. We see a priority here, much like we see all over the New Testament. Not just on showing the love of Christ in the world, but particularly showing the love of Christ to one another in the church. The church is in the world together. The church needs each other. Because here at the close of this passage, we realize that Even submission to the government, as important as that is, must ultimately be done in the context of fear of God. So follow this. First Peter is making absolutely clear that governing authorities, including the emperor, do not hold absolute sway over our lives. Only God possesses that kind of authority. Let me say that again. Governing authorities, including emperor, president, whoever, do not hold absolute sway over our lives. Only God possesses that kind of authority in our lives. So Peter is clearly not advocating submission to government regardless of what the government says. Because believers in Christ are first and foremost, over and above everything, free servants of God. Just think about the language in this passage. We're be subject to governing authorities. Verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake... We're to obey the will of God, verse 15 says. So if a government is prescribing something evil, then the Christian is not obligated to do evil. Why not? Because the Christian ultimately fears God. Peter's certainly not advocating committing sin for the Lord's sake. He's not saying sin because it's the will of God. And similarly, if the government sits back and allows evil, then the Christian is obligated to do good because we fear God. In the words of Micah, 6-8, we do justice, we love mercy, we work on behalf of the poor and the weak and the oppressed. This is one of the lessons we must 
learn as the church. Now you start to put all this together. Okay, we're submissive citizens of a government, inclined to submit to governing authorities. We want to submit to them because God has set them up for our good. As Christians, we are also free servants of God, free from sin, to model good lives, to show God's love in the world. So what do we do in circumstances where the will of God and the will of government are in opposition to one another? And ultimately, we obey our God because we fear our God more than we fear government. And the answer from 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, Matthew 22 is clear. We honor our government and its leaders. Ultimately, we fear our God and his word. We model good lives and we show God's love in obedience to his word no matter what that that he continue to participate in acts of peaceful civil disobedience. In one of his many books, Perkins writes about Romans 13. He says, Romans 13, 1 through 5, makes clear that every Christian, and he quotes from it, must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Scriptures teach us to make every effort to live at peace with everyone, to return good for evil, to turn the other cheek, as a rule to follow the laws laid down by government authorities. Even though many emperors were despotic and evil rulers in Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2, the apostles Paul and Peter still instructed Christians to submit to the Roman government. So acknowledge is exactly what we've talked about. And then immediately after writing this, Perkins explains, if your conscience recognizes that a law is evil, it is your responsibility to use the free will you've been given to rise up against it. He says a part of the Christian's faith is to free one's conscience. And if our conscience condemned us, we're in bad shape because God is greater than our conscience. Basically, what he's pointing to there is exactly what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 is encouraging us. Like, fear God. He is our ultimate authority. He has given government as good authority in our lives. Yet, if we ever have to make a choice between God, obeying God, and obeying government, we obey God which is not an easy thing to do. Like we like to think it is, we like to say, yeah, of course. But the reality is, just like Christians in the first century, this is why we see all these exhortations all over the New Testament, because Christians were in businesses where they were missing out because of their faith in Christ. They were losing out in this way or that way. They weren't able to rise, advance. And so all throughout the New Testament, we see these encouragements to stay strong, trust in Christ, don't compromise. Because the reality is, it's not just first century. In the 21st century, we can so quickly accommodate cultural norms or mandates here or there out of fear of what might happen to us if we don't. And in the end, we can suddenly find ourselves fearing our government more than we fear our God. It was a constant temptation for the church in the first century. And we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't think it was a temptation for the church in the 21st century. But the word of God is clear. While we want to submit to government in every way we can, we must submit to God in every way he commands. That's what Jesus, Peter, Paul are saying. It's what, it's the exact words of the earliest Christians when they were being commanded not to preach the gospel by the government. Remember Acts chapter five, verse 27? When they had brought them, set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
So how did Peter and the apostles reply? They said, we must obey God rather than men. Which is not the only time that happens in scripture. Think about other times when the commands of government and the commands of God have directly contradicted one another and the people of God have chosen to obey God rather than government. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Refusing to bow down and worship the king even when their lives were threatened with a fiery furnace. Daniel, just three chapters later, commanded not to pray. So what does he do? He goes up, opens the doors of his room and prays, not in private, but in public, knowing that a den of lions would soon be his fate. Hebrews 11 recounts men and women who were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is the legacy of those who've gone before us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who when faced with the challenge, chose to obey God rather than men. I fear that if we're not careful as the church in our culture, we will be tempted to compromise and obey men rather than God. And I want to exhort us to be a church who loves in a godly way being submissive citizens to a government and ultimately loves in a godly way being free servants who fear God. Based on these two biblical truths, and their practical application, which we could dive into a lot more. I just want to offer two final takeaways from this text, particularly for us as a church. Number one, let us honor those who give their lives defending freedom in our nation. That is a good and right thing to do. One of the ways we show God's love. I trust we know that the privilege we enjoy today, this freedom to worship in this gathering, comes at a high cost. Men and women who've gone before us, fought to defend this freedom, men and women and their families, even among us who pay a high price on a day-by-day, month-by-month, year-by-year basis to defend this freedom in our nation, particularly through serving in the military, which many people in this church have done or are doing. So it is right for us to recognize and honor men and women in different ways, pray for them to show God's love to them. So we have one more takeaway, but before I get to it, I want to pause for a minute and I want to show you a video that encapsulates the unique challenge that is faced by those who serve in the military and their families and the power of the gospel in the midst of that challenge. So watch this with me. So we have a mission as the church of Jesus Christ and that mission is clear. We proclaim the gospel to hurting hearts right here in our country and all over the world. We want people all across Washington, D.C. from all kinds of nations and ethnic backgrounds to come to know the ultimate freedom that's found in Christ alone. And we don't want to stop here. That's why we have teams right now in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, in a country where there is no religious freedom, where it's illegal to share the gospel and illegal to convert to Christ. But we're going there and we're spreading the gospel because more than anything else, we want people to know freedom from sin and death and new life in Christ. So this July 4th week, I challenge us, church, particularly here in the United States, let's celebrate freedom we have Thank God for it. Honor those who make it possible. But 
let us not be so American in our thinking that we miss the opportunities around the office, around the cookout, or wherever you might be to share the ultimate freedom that is found in Christ alone. This is the word of God on God and government, faith, and freedom. So let's, let's pray. Oh God, we have so much to pray for. In light of all that we've just seen in your word, we praise you for your grace toward us and the freedom we enjoy. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters right now who don't have this freedom. Lord, please strengthen and uphold them. Grant them endurance and perseverance in their faith, we pray, and cause them to speak your word with great boldness that the gospel might spread through them even in the middle of persecution. God, we pray as you've commanded us to pray for our leaders. We pray for President Trump. We pray for Vice President Pence. We praise you. We, we pray for all of our leaders in Congress, judges, and state, national levels. God, we pray for your mercy. Grace that you would help them to restrain evil and promote good. God, we pray you would draw by your grace their hearts to your truth and your definition of that which is good. God, we pray for our lives. We want to be faithful, fearing you in the time and place you've put us. So help us as submissive citizens of a government and free servants Christ. Help us to fear you, to show your love, to model good lives in a way that brings great glory to your name. Help us, we pray, to use our freedom in Christ on top of the other freedoms you give us, Lord, to magnify your name and to spread your love. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.